Hey all, just quickly before we get started, the Reasonably Sound t-shirt is now permanently available at Cotton Bureau. If you missed the window last time around, you are in luck. Head to cottonbureau.com, C-O-T-T-O-N-B-U-R-E-A-U.com and search for Reasonably Sound to grab a t-shirt. And when your shirt arrives, please send me a photo of you wearing it. Looking dope. It's episode 42, which means I wouldn't be able to forgive myself if we didn't talk about life, the universe, and everything. By which I mean life, the universe, and something, Douglas Adams. It's okay if you have no idea what I'm talking about. We're going to spend most of the episode in some weeds totally distinct from those that you reach through a pentology, or hexology, depending, of sci-fi books about a man who roams the universe after his house and planet get destroyed to make way for two bypasses of vastly, vastly different scales. Douglas Adams was an English sci-fi writer, most famous for The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a radio play turned set of books turned TV miniseries. In it, human Arthur Dent and his... friends? traverse time and space in the aftermath of Earth's destruction by a race of notoriously bureaucratic beings called the Vogons. They wouldn't even lift a finger to save their own grandmothers from the ravenous bug bladder beast of trial without orders. Signed in triplicate, sent in, sent back. Queer. The tragedy is that Earth wasn't just a planet teeming with life, but also a computer. Or I guess more accurately, it was really a computer, because the teeming life on it formed an integral part of its computational mechanism. The Earth computer was built to run a very specific program, the result of which would be the question of life, the universe, and everything. Not the answer, mind you. A previous computer named Deep Thought calculated the answer. It was... 42! The actual meaningful sentiment with a question mark on its end, the answer to which being 42, makes clear the ultimate meaning of existence. It was Earth's job to run the numbers and figure that out. But whoops, the Vogons blew it up. Arthur and Ford, his Earth friend who is seemingly from Earth but isn't, escape just in time and are essentially... Refugees searching for kindness and understanding in a vastly confused, confusing, and dispassionate universe. Which, as you might imagine, is full of very strange and heterogeneous beings. Early on, Arthur is confused by the rasping nonsense issuing from the speakers of the spaceship upon which they've stowed away, and Ford hands him a babelfish. A tiny creature you shove into your ear, and which, through its own biological processes, allows you to understand any language. This episode of Reasonably Sound, episode 42, is about the Babelfish. Sort of. Mostly, we're going to talk about language. What it is, why there's more than one, and what might make it possible to translate Vogon into English. In the Hitchhiker's Guide miniseries, the Babelfish 
is described like this. The babelfish is small, yellow, leech-like, and probably the oddest thing in the universe. It feeds on brainwave energy, absorbing all unconscious frequencies and then excreting telepathically a matrix formed from the conscious frequencies and nerve signals picked up from the speech centers of the brain. The practical upshot of which is that if you stick one in your ear, you instantly understand anything said to you in any form of language. The speech you hear decodes the brainwave matrix. The Babelfish was arguably a throwaway device along the lines of Star Trek's Universal Translator or the TARDIS from Doctor Who's Translation Circuit, something that allows a protagonist to understand the vast array of rasps, squeaks, barks, groans, and clicks issuing from the speaky parts of Earth knows how many mystifying beings. But the Babelfish has become one of Adams's most enduring creations for its absurdity, for its novelty, and also for its elegance, I think. Small, biological, efficient. Get it? Efficient? Hmm? Yeah? Yeah? Okay, I'm sorry. The thought of being able to go anywhere, speak to everyone, it is gripping. And also, of course, unlocks endless story in Arthur's journey around the galaxy. We're going to start our own trek across the universe of language at its beginning. Where, pray tell, does language come from? Not French or Swahili or Hopi or Urdu or Vogon. Not a language, but language. Where did that start? We should be clear that language means a lot of things. Sign language is a language, and it's not just one language either. There's American Sign Language, Mauritanian Sign Language, Indo-Pakistani Sign Language, Lebanese Sign Language, and a lot more. C, Pearl, and Java are languages, and depending upon who you ask, music might be a language. As are Esperanto, Elvish, Dothraki, and, well, some of us have made the case that SMS speak or emoji use have language-like elements is dance a language your answer may indicate the meaning you find or find expressible in poetic gesture is catalan a language or is it a dialect your answer to this question especially in much of the mid-20th century could indicate your ideological inclination and potentially signal support of spain's authoritarian franco regime as far as linguists are concerned catalan is a language by the way the point being, we should just make sure that we're clear about our bounds and sensitive to the potential breadth of that label, as well as the difficulty in claiming objective designations, as always. Postmodern shrug, as always. So, to be clear, we are considering language what humans do to communicate with one another, which is maybe anthropocentric, but it is the clearest model we have, so we're going to use it. Language is a learned sensory motor activity. It's spoken, gestured, heard, seen, maybe written, maybe not, and it has grammar, a set of consistent rules for creating meaning, usually by combining small elements of language to create larger ones. Think like letters to words, words to sentences. Language can reckon with time and space. We can communicate about things that were and will be and which are not currently staring us in the face. 
Language can also refer to abstract concepts, things like emotion, economy, and the very idea of abstraction itself. Being able to do all these things makes us, humans, pretty unique. I mean, don't get me wrong, dolphins, primates, very clever, accomplished communicators, but by and large, not language users, in the sense that we can't really converse with any given dolphin about how the predicted state of the economy will make us feel. Yet. Maybe we have yet to set up the right number and arrangement of hoops for them to jump through. Curiously enough, the dolphins had long known of the impending demolition of Earth and had made many attempts to alert mankind to the danger. But most of their communications were misinterpreted as amusing attempts to punch footballs or whistle for titbits. So then, why are humans the only ones who seem to be able to communicate all of this complicated stuff? What's so special about us? And who to thunk? There's not a lot of consensus here. Or really, there are a bunch of different consensuses. We're going to talk about three dudes who have some things to say about all of this. Linguist and philosopher Noam Chomsky famously holds that there is something uniquely and even innately human about the capacity for language. Chomsky says that humans have a particular language faculty, or even a language organ. Other beings can vocalize. Um, they have larynxes, lungs, they may be able to gesture or point, they may have good memories, but their brains are missing a certain, as who we now understand as the French may say, je ne sais what. Chomsky thinks humans are unique in our ability for language because of a single, yet crucial, mutation, which over the course of a hundred plus thousand years gave rise to the capacity for language by uniting other cognitive faculties. Sort of like the keystone in an archway, this mutation helped a whole assemblage of thinky bits hang together in a usable structure, giving us the ability to see someone we know across the street and say, Hey, sup? And they know exactly what we're asking. Chomsky doesn't think that the stuff that worked together to give us language was really for language, though. Language was just kind of a happy accident, in his view. He and some of his compatriots have described language as a spandrel, a biology term appropriated from architectural design by Stephen Jay Gould to explain a characteristic which is the byproduct of natural selection, not its result. Basically, he forwards this idea that there's a bunch of processes helping us be early humans in the early human world in a multitude of ways, and then suddenly, suddenly on the genetic scale, which is like several thousand generations, so not really a snap, language emerges as, quote, the result of some genetic event that rewired the brain. Cognitive psychologist and linguist Steven Pinker agrees that language is the result of some mutation, but considers its development much more direct, and directly the result of natural selection and adaptive evolution, where organisms evolve in response to their environment. Pinker thinks it's unlikely that there was some single seed which blossomed into the capability for language by uniting other non-language-related processes. More likely, he thinks, a cascade of mutations took us to language directly, with scare quotes around the word directly, basically with about as much purpose as one can conceivably gift to the process of evolution, which, you know, it's not tons. In Language as an Adaptation to the Cognitive Niche, Pinker puts it like this. As with other complex organs that accomplish improbable feats, 
the necessary circuitry for language is unlikely to have evolved by a process that is insensitive to the functionality of the end product, such as a single mutation, genetic drift, or arbitrary physical constraints. Dang, calling out Chomsky. He continues, Natural selection is the most plausible explanation of the evolution of language because it is the only physical process in which how well something works can explain how it came into existence. Language works so well and is as powerful as it is, Pinker says, because it can convey propositional information, who did what to whom, what is true of what, when, where, and why. Such constructions allow and are allowed by cause and effect reasoning, he argues, which is part of the cognitive niche that names the paper and the fundamental evolutionary advantage that language capability affords us, he says. This then leads to greater accomplishments. Communication allows one to share knowledge. Shared knowledge allows for cooperation and coordination. Coordination builds societies, and societies are more powerful than individuals. Look who is talking now. And by talking, I mean, you know, first developing tools and then dominating the planet. Psychologist and linguist Michael Tomasello, our final dude, takes the last part of Pinker's theory, the part about building community, not as the end point advantage of having language, but as a starting point for its development. He's all about a usage-based theory of language, essentially looking at the development and acquisition of language through what it helps people accomplish. Tomasello makes the case that Human language began with pointing and pantomiming, and from there grew in complexity based on the needs of humans, bolstered by our psycho and physiological capability, and within what he calls a social cognitive and social motivational infrastructure. Basically, humans think things through as a community and are motivated by social interaction, both of which guide the development and use of language. Tomasello doesn't discount the role of powerful human cognition, pointing out that pointing out something is potentially a more cognitively complex communication than most primates regularly engage in. Many apes, especially those raised in captivity, will point imperatively, commanding a nearby human to give them food or unlock a gate or whatever, but they will never point at one another and they will never point in explanation or to draw attention. Likely, that's because apes don't recognize that other beings have a mental state capable of attention, which is a major roadblock in the development of intentional communication. Neither does Tomasello doubt the evolutionary advantage of all of this, writing in Origins of Human Communication that, at some point in human evolution, individuals who could engage with one another collaboratively with joint intentions, joint attention, and cooperative motives were at an adaptive advantage. Cooperative communication then arose as a way of coordinating these collaborative activities more efficiently, first inheriting and then helping to build further a common psychological infrastructure of shared intentionality. Hmm. Rather than language capability arising from a kind of spark that kindles the human mind, and in addition to being the result of an adaptive evolutionary process, Tomasello sees language as also needing, and being needed by, uniquely human social conditions. Something was needed to communicate, collaborate, cooperate, and share intention within our social infrastructure, and turns out, language is pretty good at that. So, but okay, 
innate human capability, result of adaptive evolution, arisen from social infrastructure, whatever. We've been talking about language, this whole act, and what we're eventually after is translation between languages. If there were just one language, the Babelfish would be much less compelling, but as it so happens, there are English speakers, Russian speakers, Japanese speakers, and the Silastic Armor Fiends of Striderax. You want to know what they're on about by putting a small yellow water dweller in your skull. Well, first off, the Silastic Armor Fiends of Striderax are probably saying, This means war. But second, loud and clear. Next up, why is there more than one language? The Babelfish is named after the Bible story about the mythical Tower of Babel. In this story, humanity is united after the Great Flood, and in their hubris, they scheme to build the tower which will reach the kingdom of heaven. Verses even go so far as to point out that such a ridiculous prospect is within reach only because of humanity's shared tongue. Genesis chapter 11 verse 6 reads, The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. The big guy upstairs, ever concerned about children traipsing through his cloud lawn, he got to put a stop to this. So, he scatters humanity across the land and confounds their speech, giving them different languages so they can't easily collaborate. And, oh, just so it's been pointed out, the OED says that there's no direct connection etymologically between um, babble, as in, like, to speak nonsense, and babel, as in tower of, though, quote, association may have affected some senses of the word babble. Linguist John C. Marr points out that there are a few different reads on the moral of babel. The most common being many languages bad. The confounding of humankind's language can be viewed as punishment for pride or arrogance or, I mean, even labor organization, if you squint. But another read is that Babel, the city, wasn't really that awesome. And maybe the tower was more a symbol of tyranny than ambition or hubris. Nimrod, the king of the land upon which the tower was built, can be viewed as a despot, forcefully maintaining a unified identity amongst all the people of earth. Beyond judgment of man's hubris, Babel can be seen as a judgment of an empire's hubris, a critique of cultural and linguistic homogeneity. The drama's denouement, Marr writes, is that God forces humankind to go intercultural, to try to live in a diverse and challenging world of different peoples, languages, and cultures. In this view, God doesn't frustrate humankind's progress on some grand accomplishment. He frees them from oppressive authoritarian rule and stops their labor on a literally towering symbol of it. 
in many mythological stories, the origins of language are shrouded in misery, violence, or destruction. Humans living under the rule of Zeus spoke one tongue until Hermes brought language and dialects to them. This caused such chaos and led to such antagonism among the mortals that Zeus was like, I give up, and handed the rule of man to the first human king. The Hindu world tree, similar to the Tower of Babel, was growing large enough to reach the heavens. It stretched over all mankind, uniting them in one language, in one culture. For its pride, Brahma destroyed the tree and scattered its branches across the world. And from those branches, new trees grew, around which different civilizations, with different cultures and languages, developed. The historical account of how languages were born, spread, and change isn't much less complex or violent than the mythological accounts, unfortunately. But at least it results in the same broad, global panoply of cultures and customs. Michael Tomasello explains that the reason one human group might create their own unique linguistic conventions is hard to pin down, but most likely is the need for groups of humans to differentiate themselves from other groups. And indeed, language is a major barrier for outsiders becoming full members of a cultural group later in life, a kind of cultural isolating mechanism. And conversely, the use of language, including for sharing experiences and attitudes about common experiences in narratives, is a major way that cultural groups create their own internal group identities. Basically, it's like when you were a kid and you and your friends made up a secret language to keep your siblings or your other friends from knowing what you were up to, but like um, on the order of a whole society. And from there, well, it's the usual suspects as far as the spread and or death of culture and its practices. Religion, colonialism, war, genocide, trade, annexation, migration, social pressure or incentive, tradition, and yeah, I mean, this is not an unfamiliar list of things, I'm guessing. They're all responsible for the spread, adoption, and yes, disappearance of languages. Current estimates put the number of languages in the world between six and 7,000, but around a third of those have less than 1,000 speakers. 2,500 languages are considered endangered. Half the world's population speaks about two dozen languages, and some estimates put the mortality rate of languages at around 500 per year. But okay, does that matter? Why wouldn't we want just one language? Beyond the a priori value of cultural practices and artifacts, Mars' read of Babel is compelling, I think, that global multilingualism makes the world diverse and challenging. It structures our cultural experiences and makes apparent the remarkable difference which exists within some otherwise seemingly singular category like human, American, or even New Yorker. We're not going to get into the weeds of whether your language determines how you think or what about, but more than as a structure for your thoughts, language is a symbol of your experiences. And those symbols are powerful, both for those who wield them and those who must interpret them. The way one creates meaning is itself meaningful. And I don't want to cut our Babelfish question off at the knees here, but I wonder how much of that would be lost in a flattened language space. Does enforcing a universal monolingualism via some personal technology make you a nimrod? Does it erase something of the voices and identities of others in the name of convenience? Maybe the Babelfish, or really much more present in-ear technologies like it, have an impact similar to noise-canceling headphones discussed way back in episode three of Reasonably Sound. I'm going to leave that conundrum posed, but unaddressed. 
And instead, I'm going to move on to the next question. If this is how it all works for humans, would it be the same for aliens? Given their particular sensory motor capabilities, would they have developed a language reflecting their particular evolutionary slash social development? And would that have happened in such a way that they maintained a differentiation from alien races they'd been in proximity to? Would their language be a symbol of their experiences, their culture? And I would wager that that's how it has to work. I think I feel safe saying that if a being has language, it has culture. It feels like kind of a package deal. So then... If a language were to develop and differentiate in and between alien races the exact same way it does for humans, would we have any hope of ever being able to understand it, even with a Babelfish? I think it could go either way. What if an alien language was constructed entirely via scent, or was inscribed in the movement of subatomic particles? We reach here challenges to the operation of the Babelfish, which would seem to rely on sound waves, though there is some evidence that it would allow its wearer to read text written in some alien language. Anyway, the point being, a lot would have to be true for the Babelfish to work as described, and really for the act of translation, as we currently understand it, to work on any given alien language. But let's assume we get lucky and the movie Arrival happens. There's a system of communication which superficially resembles our own linguistic norms and isn't based upon, say, the diffraction of infrared light. Is there any chance that our two systems of communication would share semantic or grammatical components that would allow the translation of meaning from one to the other? Noam Chomsky says basically, yes. The chances are good. One of Chomsky's most well-known contributions to the field of linguistics is a highly influential, famous, and infamous ever-evolving theory called universal grammar, or UG. The overall idea is very simply stated. One, language is too hard to learn as quickly as humans do it without some innate capability, as we've discussed. And two, if that capability is innate to most, if not all, humans, which it seems to be, there must be some shared structure component to all languages that humans speak. This universal grammar would sit at the base of every spoken and gestured linguistic communication system on the planet. What that grammar might be, that is harder to state. It has changed a lot over the years, but if you're curious, I'll put some things you can read in the show notes. At first, universal didn't really mean universal. Chomsky thought, well, there are so many cosmic circumstances which could lead to the evolution of a different sort of language organ in an extraterrestrial. It is possible, if not likely, that an alien race would have a different universal grammar. We're designed by nature for English, Chinese, and every other possible human language, he said in 1983. But we're not designed to learn perfectly usable languages that violate universal grammar. These languages would simply not be within the range of our abilities. As of recently, though, he's changed his tune. 
This year, a couple months ago, actually, as of posting, at the International Space Development Conference, Chomsky and his colleague Jeffrey Wadamel said in a workshop that the Martian language might not be so different from human language after all. Their reasoning is that much in the way the universe has laws, communication might too. Even if there is a wide evolutionary or cognitive rift between humans and aliens, there may be requirements of symbolic communication which close that rift. Basically, maybe any form of language would have to rely on universal grammar. The basic principles of language, they said, are drawn from the domain of virtual, conceptual necessity. Maybe this bodes well for the Babelfish. All systems of written, spoken, or performed language may be translatable by their very nature. Steven Pinker, who was deeply influenced by Chomsky's universal grammar, describes himself as skeptical regarding the translatability of alien tongues. Tomasello, the usage-based theory of language guy, is quiet on aliens, at least as far as I've read, but he does think universal grammar in general is suspect. Languages, he writes, have been created within the constraints of pre-existing human cognition and sociality. I'm putting words in his mouth here, but I would guess that Tomasello would argue different cognition, different sociality, different concept of language altogether. And so maybe we celebrated too early, and that's a roadblock to translatability. But what I wonder, along the premise of Tomasello's usage-based theory, is if translatability is really the same thing as meaningfulness. Like, even if we can translate an alien language, does that mean we'd be able to comprehend it? Tomasello draws a lot from a guy that we've heard from before, unreasonably sound, philosopher Mr. Ludwig Wittgenstein. He didn't write about aliens either, at least as far as I know, but he did write one line about a lion. In his Philosophy of Psychology, section 327, he writes, If a lion could speak, we could not understand him. This sentiment, referred to as Wittgenstein's lion, is nearby another sentiment about how one may go to a foreign land and, even if you speak the language, still have a hard time understanding the people. We can't find our feet with them, Wittgenstein writes. So, Universal grammar be damned, even if you speak the same language, there can remain this distance. One may point at a teacup and know how to say teacup and be able to describe what will happen to that cup during tea time later in the day, but one may nonetheless lack context for the significance of this object and the system of meaning it fits into what it represents, what it is thought to be for, its place in what Tomasello may call a social infrastructure. These things may be taught through instruction or immersion, but I wonder how much gaining that knowledge is made possible thanks to the unspoken and largely invisible shared context of humanity, of, of being humans. In his Philosophical Investigations, Wittgenstein writes that when one imagines a language, one imagines a form of life 
meaning language is all bound up in how we live, all the stuff we do. Language is continuous, Wittgenstein thought, with all of the actions, understandings, and contexts which we share with the people we use language around. Those people may be like or unlike us to varying degrees, leading to some nuanced misunderstandings and miscommunications, but they're still people. What if those people weren't? What if a lion could speak? What if you had to converse with the Hulavu, a race of hyper-intelligent shades of the color blue? Would their form of life produce remarkable, potentially inexhaustible misunderstandings? Douglas Adams describes the babelfish as feeding on the brainwave energy of speakers, whoever is talking to the person with the fish in their ear, who is the listener. The babelfish absorbs the speaker's unconscious thoughts as food and then excretes a telepathic matrix into the mind of the listener, formed also from the speaker's conscious thoughts as well as their nerve impulses. That matrix is then decoded by the acoustic signals actually heard by the listener. <sighs> okay. I think what we're meant to take from this is that the fish consumes a low-level mental representation of what the speaker is saying. Not their thoughts, not what they mean to say, or what they're thinking. The babelfish isn't a mind-reading device but some normally unreachable aspect of language acting as a foundation for what's being said. Some aspect of a universal grammar, perhaps. The babelfish, in concert with the mind of the listener, then acts as a kind of decoder ring, combining the literally digested unconscious language constructions with conscious intention, physical presence, and acoustic signal. This signaled salad is then read into the mind of the listener who hears, or perhaps thinks they hear, what is being said in their own language. I can't help but wonder if, in actual practice, actual here being accessorized with some scare quotes, speaking to a hyper-intelligent shade of the color blue through some universal translator in our own speculative far future wouldn't produce an uncanny valley approximation of human language. The linguistic equivalent of the sound of a garbage truck engine approximated by a cello. A map of your grandmother's house in scent only. Something which is, at remove, what it claims to be, but would never seem so without the aid of remarkably different perspective, or highly specific context. Lacking a shared form of life, if a Vogon did speak, and we could translate him, would we be able to understand him? That the Babelfish works in fiction may indicate that it, and other fully functioning universal translators for that matter, are more remarkable devices than they're often given credit. I mean, Adams gave due credit for the Babelfish's monumentality. In the story, the existence of the fish is thought to prove the non-existence of God. 
it being so unlikely that such a remarkably useful thing would evolve by chance, proves some aspect of intelligent design, says man. But God refuses to prove his own existence because Proof denies faith and without faith I'm nothing. Ah, man says, but the Babelfish exists, so obviously you exist. And if you exist, you don't. Oh dear, says God, I hadn't thought of that, and promptly vanishes in a puff of logic. The Babelfish, an idea so good, it killed God. I wonder what Nimrod thinks of this turn of events. No, really what I mean by more remarkable than they're given credit is that it's easy to leave the full complexity and meaningfulness of its operation unconsidered. The Babelfish would seem capable not only of translating language, but context, experience, forms of life, the things necessary to translate vastly different languages if you're on board with everything I've laid out. The Babelfish can, arguably, collapse evolutionary circumstances, cognitive capabilities, social cognitive and social motivational infrastructures, making it a translation device that spans many, if not all, the major theories of what language is and how it's formed. You wouldn't be alone in wondering, then, if the Babelfish, the universal translator, the translation circuit if they wouldn't necessarily have some non-linguistic side effects based on all of this. Even if it's some low-level telepathic matrix-type stuff, what are the chances two peoples understanding one another on a social-cognitive level means they'd understand one another on a cultural level? And what are the chances that understanding would lead to tolerance or curiosity? In our own universe, such was the inspiration for Esperanto, a global language designed in the hopes of fostering world peace. That's a slightly different scope than, you know, universal translators or alien races, but it would seem, based on research, that a shared language has little or no impact on the existence of conflict between nations. Source in the show notes. Sorry, Esperantonians. So, until such a time where a tiny, yellow, leech-like language fish pops into existence and we have occasion to use it in diplomatic talks with the Huluvu, we'll rely on the wisdom of the Hitchhiker's Guide, which explains that the Babelfish has caused more and bloodier wars than anything else in the history of creation. I told you the Silastic Armor Fiends mean business. So long and thanks for all the fish. My name is Mike Rignetta, and this podcast has been Reasonably Sound. You can find Reasonably Sound on Twitter and Instagram at ReasonablySND and me at Mike Rugnetta. As you may have heard, we got t-shirts. Head to CottonBureau.com and search for Reasonably Sound to grab one. I'm not going to lie, I bought two of my own shirt, and I wear them all the time. They are super comfortable, and that is not bragging, because I had nothing to do with the fabric choice. I am just impressed. A big old thanks and shout out to all of Reasonably Sound's patrons, subscribers, and t-shirt wearers with a double extra thanks to Harry Brisson, Johnny C, 
and Richard Hansen. If you like the show, you can throw me a couple bucks per episode at patreon.com forward slash reasonably sound. You can also join me in all my internet endeavors, including but not limited to reasonably sound for a monthly couple bucks on drip at d.rip forward slash micrognetta. But of course, however you can join in is greatly appreciated. Share the show on social media, tell your friends about it, write a review on iTunes or say hey on Twitter or Instagram. It's all awesome and all very, very much appreciated. Reasonably Sound's theme and act break music are by Will Stratton, and its visual design is by Tita Tepp. O oh, fettled gruntbugly, thy micturations are to me as a plurdled gabbleblotchits on a lurgid bee that morduously hath blurted out its urted jertles grumbling into a rancid, festering, confectious organ squealer. Now the jerpling slated agricrustals are slurping hagrily up the axle groats, and living gluptuals fraught and stipulate like jowling, meated liver slime, group. I implore thee, my foonting, turling drones, and hooptuously drangle me with crinkly bindle-wortles and masherbatries, or else I shall rend thee in the gobber-warts with my blurgle-crunchin'. See if I don't. I probably won't.